Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is your host, Dane Kramer. Thank you for joining me today. If you'd like to know more about me or this podcast, just go to thethinkingchristian.us. That is my website. There you can find all the previously released podcasts. You can download those for free, listen to them. You can interact with them by registering comments if you'd like. I also have some articles that I've written uh, over the past couple of years on my website. You can uh, feel, feel free to browse anything there. Uh, or some other interests of mine are also found on that website. Uh, feel free to take a look. And before you leave uh, the website, go to the home page and you can put in your email address and name. Hit the subscribe button so that when a new podcast is released or an update to the website is made, you will get a notification in your email box and you can listen to it that way. Or you can go to Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Android, or your favorite uh, podcasting app and just simply uh, subscribe to the podcast from there. Okay, well let's get into today's topic. Uh, Last week in my podcast I talked about deception and um, I guess, you know, with that with that uh, same theme, I'm going to go a little bit further because what I'm going to talk about today, I think, has something to do with that. We're going to talk about a coming Antichrist. Um, now, unless you've lived in a hole for the past <laughs> 200 years, um, you, you, you should know what I'm talking about. Um, almost everybody kind of understands, even, even uh, non-believers believe or at least understand something about the word antichrist and what we might be talking about when we say antichrist. Um, and most people believe that, that antichrist refers to a coming world ruler. Uh, this is uh, made very, very popular in the dispensational system. You don't have to understand that word. That's fine. But uh, it's very popular in that uh, most people believe that the antichrist will come out of a revived Roman Empire. He'll be a world dictator. Um, they believe that Revelation 13, the first beast described there, is the Antichrist. Uh, it is believed that the Antichrist is also the man of sin, referred to in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's the little horn found in Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to talk about those passages here today a little bit. Um, in, his, in his book, Beginning of the End, John Hagee, a very, very famous dispensationalist, and that just sort of speaks to his... Um, his way of interpreting the Bible. He has a lot to say about the Antichrist. Uh, he believes that the Antichrist, and he, and he believes that Scripture describes him in this way. He says that he will have a hypnotic charm about him. He believes that he'll come from the European Union or a Roman country. He believes that he will win over or he will conquer ten nations. He believes that he will have paid his dues in the military or some sort of political service and that he will have absolute power one day. Uh, He believes that he might be considered a man of peace and maybe even a Nobel Peace Prize winner prior to taking this uh, political office. Oh boy, what is he? He says that he will guarantee peace for Israel and the Middle East, and he'll make even a seven year peace treaty pact with uh, the Middle East. But about halfway through that, John Hagee believes that the Antichrist will break that peace treaty and things get really bad from that point. So that's just some some thoughts that are out there about a coming world leader known as the Antichrist. Well, let me let me first sort of tell you what I believe, and then I'll show you some scripture of where I get it. In fact, I'll walk through the same scriptures I already mentioned. Is there a coming Antichrist, a world leader? Um, my answer would be there might be. 
I just can't find anything about that in the Bible. I'm leaving an intentional pause here for that to sink in. I think most listeners are at this point kind of scrambling for the unsubscribe button, thinking, oh my goodness, this Dane is... uh, He's radical. He's way out there in the field. He's, uh, he's lost all kind of um, uh, sensibility here. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And maybe I don't. I don't know. You'll have to let me know about that. But I'll, I will ask that you hear me out on this a little bit. Again, my position is uh, there might be a coming world leader, a global leader. I don't know. Possibly. Um, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. And I'm going to walk you through some scriptures today because I think truth matters. And I think that we have to be reasonable as we read the scriptures. And I'm not interested in hype. I'm not interested in, interested in a John Hagee approach to the Bible where we just talk about all the exciting stuff. I'm, I'm interested in what does the Bible really have to say. And, um, well, first of all, let's take, about, let's take a look at the word Antichrist. Uh, it does appear in the Bible. It appears five times in about four different passages. Uh, so in one passage, actually, it occurs twice, and that is in 1 John 2.18, which is the first time chronologically that we read the word Antichrist. The uh, author is John, the same person who wrote the book of Revelation. In verse 18, he says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. That's 1 John 2, verse 18. A few verses later, in verse 22, he said, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Uh, same book in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 say, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And finally, in the book of Second John, chapter 1, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, that's where the word antichrist is found in the Bible. I, I just read you every passage that contains that word. There's nothing there about being a world ruler. There's nothing about um, in there about making a cashless society or anything like a, about that that's often thought about this person. Certainly doesn't say anything about being a Nobel Peace Prize winner um, or anything like that. In fact, if anything from those verses, we read that John believes Antichrist has already come in his day. Um, and, uh, he, and he describes what Antichrist is. It's, it's those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. Uh, those who are not of God, uh, sort of generically uh, talking about the word Antichrist there. So we have no reason to believe, I, I, from my uh, understanding of these passages, that John is saying any more than some simple things about Antichrist. So where does this belief come from? Well, it comes from putting some other passages of Scripture together, and then it comes from a lot of imagination. Um. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, in this chapter, or in this book, really, Paul, one thing that Paul is dealing with is apparently the church in Thessalonica, that's the church that he's writing to, apparently the church had somehow arrived to the belief that Jesus had already returned. Uh, whether They must have thought that he had a spiritual return or something like that. I, I don't know exactly where the foundation of their belief comes from, but they believed or they suspected that Jesus might have already 
return. And so Paul writes this letter to correct them, to correct this error. In fact, he even says to them, um, don't you remember I told you all of this when I was with you? That's verse 5 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, I told you this. Don't you remember we talked about this? Uh, verse 3, early, says, don't, don't let anybody deceive you that the day of the Lord has come, because it, it hasn't come. In fact, he says in verse 3 that a couple of things have to happen first before the day of the Lord, before the Lord's, our Lord's second coming. He said that day will not come, this is verse 3, unless there's a first a falling away. There there's, will be an apostasy, a falling away from the faith. And then he says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Um, But then he says in verse 7, he said, or excuse me, verse 6, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Um, Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already a work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So what Paul seems to be suggesting here is that the day of the Lord will not come until a few things happen first. First of those is a falling away from the faith. Second of all, whatever is restraining the quote-unquote man of sin or man of lawlessness, whatever is restraining him has to be taken away. Then the man of sin will be revealed, and this man of sin lasts until the coming of, um, of Christ. And what's interesting is in verse 6, he said, you know what is restraining. And the, there is some implication from the Greek, and I don't read Greek. I can look it up like anybody else can who has an internet. Um, there's some suggestion there that he's saying, you see what is restraining. In other words, you have, a, you have a personal experience in what is restraining the man of sin. Now, I suspect that when Paul had been with the church in Thessalonica, he wasn't, or he was more direct than this, and he told them exactly what it was. But it seems to be that Paul is using roundabout kind of language here. He's not, he's not telling us everything, it seems like, and I think there's a good reason for that. Um, but to explain why, we have to kind of go back a little bit. But let me just say here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about the man of sin, and, and most people believe that's the coming world leader, Antichrist. And I'm going to suggest to you another way of understanding this scripture. But look, first, let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, um, and I think this is where Paul is getting his information. Uh, he said about something restraining this man of sin. Uh, this is where I think he's pulling this from. And so it pays us to go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, one of the prophets, uh, has a vision. And um, in this vision, he sees coming out of the great sea, that's verse 2, four great beasts. Okay, Now, now listen to the description of these beasts because it's very, very important. And, and I need you to remember this. The first, in verse 4, is like a lion. Okay, um, The second, in verse 5, he describes as being like a bear. And then in verse 6, he said, there was another one, and it's like a leopard. So just remember those animals, a lion, a bear, and a leopard, because that, that will play into all of this here in just a moment. And then a fourth beast appears, and he said, this is dreadful and terrible and exceeding strong, and this, this last beast really frightened 
uh, Daniel. I mean, the other ones were kind of scary in themselves, just the way they were described, but yet this fourth beast is really kind of strange. And out of this beast, there this beast has ten horns, and while Daniel is watching, it seems this other little horn grows out of the ten. In fact, it plucks out some by their roots, some of the horns, and, and this horn, it, it has eyes and, and a mouth like a man. And we read in verse 8 that this mouth begins to speak pompous words. And again, just kind of remember that because that also plays into it. Now, Daniel was very upset by this whole vision. And uh, there's an angel nearby. And Daniel asks the angel, what does this mean? So that's very helpful to us because we will not have to guess what this vision means. Um, the angel describes to him what this means. And what he explains to him is that these first three beasts represent kingdoms, three kingdoms. Uh, the Almost all scholars recognize uh, that the lion was the kingdom of Babylon, in which Daniel had uh, lived most of his life, if not all of his life, in. The, the uh, bear would represent the Median Persian Empire, which Daniel would see. That, that followed immediately the Babylonian Empire. And then the leopard, almost all agree that that represents the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great who would, um, who would lead that. And the fourth vision, or the fourth, be- fourth beast, I should say, almost all agree represents Rome, the Roman Empire, which would eventually arise. And so as Daniel sees these four beasts, he's told that these represent four kingdoms, four um, uh, th- uh, thrones. They're kings, but more than, because each, each of these kingdoms are represented by more than one single king. And so they represent four kingdoms that arise. And then out of this last kingdom, which is Rome, uh, another one arrives. That's the little horn who, comes, who seems to come out of the Roman Empire. And he speaks blasphemous words and actually begins to persecute uh, the saints or the faithful of God. Now you might say, well, what does that have to do with Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and the man of sin? Well, let me explain what I see here going on. I think that Paul, as he wrote the, the letter to, uh, to the church in Thessalonica, he remembered Daniel chapter 7. And he knew that these four kingdoms were very remarkable in the history of the Lord, the history of not just Israel, but uh, the life of the church even, that these four kingdoms would come and go. Babylon, the media Persian Empire, uh, the Greek, the Grecian Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. Now, Paul was living in the Roman Empire, so that was currently, that was something that he and his readers were experiencing, the Roman Empire, uh, ruled by numerous kings, but it was the empire that, he was, uh, that I think he's, he has in mind. And I suspect that what Paul knew is that the Roman Empire would eventually crash, it would fail, it would fall, and something would arise from its ashes. Something would come up out of the Roman Empire. Now, since the Roman Empire was still in place in Paul's day, he knew that the day of the Lord couldn't come yet. It's interesting because uh, some might believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus could come in any moment. Well, I, actually, Paul teaches his current readers that Jesus couldn't come at any moment. There were a couple of things that must happen. And I believe one thing that Paul knew is he knew that the Roman Empire would eventually fall. And it hadn't fell yet. But Paul, so he reminds them, and I think this is why he kind of goes out of his way to be secret in it. He doesn't want to just say to them, hey, I told you, the Roman Empire has to fall first. Why? 
Well, if this letter falls into the wrong hands, I think Paul knew he could be very much endangering the church in Thessalonica. Um, if if you know he's sending them a message that the Roman Empire is going to fall, it would seem very anti-Roman or something like that, which again could endanger them. So I think he's being careful about the language that he uses. And so he reminds them, I think, that the Roman Empire has to fall, and when it does, something arises. But that something won't arise until the empire falls. And I believe that's the thing that is restraining this quote-unquote man of sin. But who is, or what is, the man of sin? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, the horns that arise have crowns, and so it would seem that these are also some sort of kingdom or some sort of um, uh, system. And I think in Revelation chapter 13, which is also often seen as a chapter about um, the Antichrist, we have further explanation of this. In Revelation chapter 13, John, uh, who uh, had this fantastic vision. He, he sees in Revelation chapter 13, he says he's standing on the sand of the sea and he sees a beast rising out of the sea. Now listen to the description of this beast. Verse 2, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. You should remember those three animals because I just mentioned them a few moments ago. Those same three animals are represented in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. And here they appear in Revelation chapter 13. So I think that this gives us a little bit of a clue as to what this beast is. In Daniel 7, they represented kingdoms. And I think that's the same way we should see them here. Whatever this beast is, it's like a conglomerate. It's a composite of, of all of these uh, previously mentioned Gentile nations that were kingdoms. And so I think the easiest way to see this beast in John's vision as also a kingdom, a system, as some sort of um, empire. Now I know that the, the language in Revelation chapter 13 calls this beast a he. And so it's easy to kind of think, well, maybe this beast here is, is a person because it's, it says they, they worship, the world worships him. He sees one of his heads being mortally wounded, verse 3. And so it sounds like, and there's a temptation to see this beast as a person. But let's not forget how it's represented. It's represented by animals that we already know represent kingdoms, not people. And, you know, that really isn't strange language or strange way to talk for us. We would often say the same thing. We would say things like, um, currently, President Trump is trying to find a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. Now, that doesn't mean that President Trump is busy working in a laboratory somewhere. <laughs> I don't think he has that in him. But what it would mean is that he and his administration, um, he and, yeah, his administration would be a good way to put it. There are helping to facilitate the study of a vaccination being developed in laboratories. But it doesn't mean that he personally is doing it. But we might say that. Or I might say uh, President Obama killed uh, Osama bin Laden. Now, that doesn't mean that he went over there by himself and knocked the door down and shot 
uh, Osama bin Laden. It, it, what it means was he orchestrated, he, he commanded it to be done. It happened under his administration. And so even though we may talk about a leader doing such and such. It's actually rare if that leader would do that at all. Usually it's his administration. And I think this language that we commonly use is also commonly used in the Bible. And so the beast in Revelation chapter 13, I don't see as being a man. A man, I'm taking my clues from scripture and I'm seeing this as some sort of system, some sort of political system. There's another beast mentioned in Revelation chapter 13, and, and, and that beast is then later described, I think, in Revelation 16 as a false prophet. So we have two beasts mentioned in this chapter. One is a political system that persecutes the faithful, and the other is a religious system that persecutes the faithful. Now, all throughout the history of time, both systems have been busy persecuting God's people. Uh, the Christians from the very beginning were persecuted first from a religious system. They were persecuted by the Jews. Then they were persecuted by a political system, Rome. And down through history, Christians over and again have been persecuted by various systems, and uh, political and or religious systems. And so I see Revelation chapter 13 as sort of a picture of, in a sense, time, um, something that the church would... Uh, the church would experience throughout time being persecuted by these political and religious systems, both of which will one day be consumed at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so someone might ask, well then, who is the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Well, again, I'm I'm taking my clues from Scripture. I do believe that the man of sin in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is probably the little horn mentioned in Daniel. But I see that, again, not as a person, but as a system, as I've already explained, as, a, as an empire, as an administration of some sort of king or kings, but not necessarily a person. And this is where I think history becomes sort of interesting for us. Uh, if we were to take a look at the fall of the Roman Empire, now, it sort of came in stages, but in the middle of the 4th century, somewhere around there, I don't know exactly what year, um, Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome, he moved the capital of Rome, which was in Rome, he moved it to the far east, or not the far east, but he moved it to the eastern Roman um, Empire area in modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, which was then known as Constantinople. And so he moved the capital, and when he did, when he moved the capital from the west to the east, it created sort of a a power vacuum in the west. There was no longer the presence of of an emperor. Uh, There was no longer the presence of this this, um, this strength and the might that it used to be there. And immediately, the Roman Empire in the west began to be threatened by uh, vandals, by by the barbarians who were threatening to invade Rome. And it needed a leader because the leader was gone, in a sense. And in fact, a leader did arise. And that leader became the papacy. The, this uh, system arose in the west, the Roman Catholic papacy arose, and did become sort of a political, religious leader in the West. Now, I don't know how much Paul knew about this quote-unquote man of sin. He just knew, based on what Daniel 7 
uh, gave us that it would come out of the fallen Roman Empire. But whatever it was, it was going to persecute the righteous. And in fact, that's exactly what the papacy did from time to time. It became the persecutor of the church. Now, one might think, wait a second, weren't they the church? Yeah, I suppose they thought that they were, because it says they sat, this man of sin will sit in the temple of God, and every time Paul uses the phrase temple of God, he's not talking about a Jewish temple. He's talking about the church. In second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, you, the church, you are the temple of God. And so whoever this man of sin is, is going to sit in the church. And so this is exactly what the papacy did. It sat there as representative of the church, but it often persecuted the church. This is the Waldenses as the Anabaptists, the uh, the Hussites. Uh, it, it persecuted, uh, it tried to persecute certainly Martin Luther. Um, and anybody who would speak against it or try to challenge it, the church would persecute. Now, that is not my theory alone. Um, actually, what's interesting is the early church fathers... Uh, in the early days of the church, most of them saw that whatever this restraining power in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, they saw as being Rome. They knew that something was going to come out of the Roman Empire. They, they saw that Rome would one day end and something would arise from it, but they didn't know what it was. But almost, almost universally, the, the church fathers saw that. What's also interesting is the early reformers, such as Martin and Zwingli and Calvin, during the Reformation, they, living this, believed that the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic papacy, was in fact the man of sin uh, coming out of the fallen Roman Empire. Or I should say, having uh, come out of the Roman, fallen Roman Empire. Now, one might think that I'm Catholic bashing, and I'm not. I'm, 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 just, I'm just talking about history. That's all I'm, all I'm talking about, uh, history. And I think the Roman Catholic history would, would bear this out, that they indeed did persecute these groups of people, which they deemed to be heretics. And many of them were as faithful as you and I. They, were, they might even be considered evangelicals in today's sense. But the Roman Catholic, of course, the church did persecute them, and they did arise out of the fallen Roman Empire as it moved from the west to the east. And so what I see in these prophecies, again, not a coming world dictator, not, not a person, but a system. In fact, I see that this system has already come. And I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic system. I'm just talking about political and religious systems have down through the ages persecuted the church. And in Revelation chapter 13, John tells his readers who the beast is in their day. He says, uh, let him, verse 18, the final verse of that chapter, let him who has understand calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. Now, he, he actually did say, here's your beast. Your beast, his number is 666, which is very interesting because um, in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew alphabet, each letter had a numerical value to it. And if you added the, the name, uh, if you wrote out the name uh, Caesar Nero, and then calculated the value of that name, it came out to be 666. And so I believe that John was telling them, here is your beast. And, and in fact, uh, Nero was in fact persecuting the church. 
and uh, was well known to the Christians as a great persecutor of them. But he would not become the last system. He would not become the last political system, the last beast, so to speak, to persecute the Christians. They have continued through time and more than likely will continue. In fact, I believe the prediction here is these systems will continue to persecute the church till Christ returns. Now, there's one final passage of Scripture I just want to kind of take a look at. I haven't mentioned it before, but it's in Daniel chapter 9. There's another prophecy that Daniel has, um, and he, he's, he's given the, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with that prophecy. But in, in essence, what Daniel was told is that, um, and most people believe these 70 weeks are um, 70 weeks of years or 490 years uh, he's told that once the decree is issued for Daniel's people, the Jews, to return back to their homeland, uh, they, were, they were captive in Babylon at the time, that the clock begins to tick until the Messiah comes. Um, verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be, 70, well, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 makes 69. There'll be 69 weeks of years until the Messiah comes, which is crazily remarkable. I think that when Jesus did appear on the scene, uh, the Jewish leaders were, they should have been at least aware that he would be coming because Daniel gives us a pretty good time um, map to follow as to when the Messiah should appear. But verse 6 of, or 26, 26, I'm sorry, verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah, Messiah shall be cut off. Now, the, the phrase cut off uh, means to die. Uh, that's uh, uh, found throughout the Old Testament, to be cut off. So, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be like a flood. Now, that's interesting. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, the mention of a prince has inflamed many dispensationalists to say, ah, we have the Antichrist being mentioned again. But I want to point out to you that the phrase, the people of the prince, um, the subject of that phrase is the people. It's not even the prince. It's just that the people of the prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be a flood. And, of course, um, about 40 years after Jesus' death, Jerusalem was indeed uh, destroy, but it says as he goes on, he said, "Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week." Verse twenty-seven, and this is where dispensationalists often say, "Ah, the he here is the Antichrist," but that doesn't make any sense because if we have a he, we have to have an antecedent, something that comes before us, some pronoun, or that is the pronoun. We need somebody named to know who the he is, and the people of the prince is the subject of that clause is the people. So if you go back to the last person named, we have the Messiah, not an Antichrist. It says, then he, and I believe it means the Messiah shall confirm a covenant for many. And he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which Jesus, of course, did. Uh, he brought an end to sacrifice and offering with his final sacrifice. And so that's another passage, I believe, that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted to mean something that it doesn't mean. Now, why am I saying all of this? I'm saying this because, again, I think truth matters. And I just want to suggest to you another way of understanding this. For some reason, 
end times is so exciting, intriguing to so many people, and they just want to run with it. And these stories and fables begin, and we start propagating things that aren't true, or at least need to be examined more closely. And I've suggested to you another way of understanding these passages, which I think does no violence to the scriptures themselves. It's reasonable to see them the way that I suggested to to you. And you don't have to. You can continue to believe whatever you want to believe. But on this podcast, these are my thoughts. And that's how I see the prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies. And with that, I'm going to sign off and hope to see you next time on the Thinking Christian Podcast.